This episode is brought to you in part by B&H Publishing Group. Sam Alberry's new kids' book, God's Go-Togethers, provides a helpful foundation for explaining why God made men and women as a special pair to complement each other in marriage and beyond. Learn more at godsgotogethers.com. But there was something about worshiping alongside a woman who would also talk a lot about the presence of deceased pets in our lives that transcended my own preferences and that actually spurs all of us on to preparing for heaven. Morgan, I want to start this out with a full disclosure, <laughs> the kind of the most full disclosure, because we are interviewing someone who has been on this podcast several times as the part of the intro, who is a managing print editor at CT and a colleague, Caitlin Beatty. And so obviously... We just wanted to note that, yes, she does work in the same office as us guys. Yeah, we just want to note it. That's all. We're not trying to be sneaky. Um, and as usual... I'm here with Morgan Lee. Usually Caitlin is here, but we thought it would be weird if she was here introducing herself. So she's not. Anyway. Hey, Morgan. Richard, how are you? You are uh, on the other CT podcast, Quick to Listen. It is true. Can you tell me what Quick to Listen is going to be about this week? This week on Quick to Listen, we're going to be talking about the dangers of media and public health. No, just kidding. We're going to be extolling (laughs) the virtues of Pokemon, potentially. Potentially. Yeah. Potential virtues. The potential virtues. Yeah. Um, I think there's plenty, but I'm going to have to make the case tomorrow yeah. about that. Is Caitlin skeptical? Caitlin hasn't downloaded it yet. Oh, so are you guys going to try it first? I don't have a smartphone. Why not? You have an iPad. Can I download it on my iPad? They I don't have so. an iPad version of it. TBD. Tune in on Thursday to okay. learn if Morgan has downloaded. So iPad. we're going to talk a little bit more about Caitlin in a minute, but first we wanted to take a moment to point out that the calling is made possible by subscribers of Christianity Today magazine. Christianity Today magazine offers redemptive, honest, beautifully orthodox coverage of the people, events, and ideas shaping the culture and church. As a subscriber each year, you're going to get 10 award-winning print issues, tablet and PDF editions, full web access to ChristianityToday.com, online archives dating back to 1956. And maybe even more stuff in the future. Who knows? We've got a special deal for those who are listening to The Calling. You get a year-long subscription for our lowest rate available. That's $10. So head on over to orderct.com slash thecalling to subscribe. Every subscription has a direct impact on the success of this podcast. I get to say, look, this person subscribed because of our podcast. You don't even know how much it matters. And guess what? What? Guess who's getting more subscriptions Yeah, so than you. we've got a little competition going on. Quick to Listen has more subscriptions than us. We got to get things rolling. If you're a fan of The Calling, we need you to show it. And I'll just say for everyone out there, if you've already subscribed for yourself, buy someone anniversary gift. presents, graduation presents, yeah. thinking of you presents, $10, people. Yes, do it. Do it, do it, do it. Anyway. What's a holiday coming up? People can buy stuff. My birthday's coming up. So by the time I record the next one, I won't have seen that there have been a bunch of new subscriptions. Guess how old he's turning and try and get him that many subscriptions. How are they? So like they have to go and buy 47 subscriptions? <laughs> Why are you trying to make listeners believe you're 47? Uh, 55, sorry. Anyway, I interviewed uh, Caitlin Beatty right here in this very room last week. I hope that she shares some of the Things that she shared with myself and other young editors in the company yesterday over lunch. Caitlin's been definitely someone I would put up there as a role model in my professional life. There's often people talk about the importance of representation, and I can't tell you how much it meant to me to read Christianity Today in college. And I went to a Christian college and see that someone who was doing really great and exciting things for Christianity Today was a couple years older than me and also a graduate of a Christian college. And then I felt that it was possible to work at CT and 
Bingo. What was she doing with the Young Editors group? She went out to lunch with us as uh-huh. part of a series that we're doing right now called How to Be a Boss. Essentially, I would, probably should have been there. I, well, I mean, look what you're doing right now. You're picking people's brains, doing this calling podcast, and it's similar in that way. That's true. Right? We're trying to hear what their stories, how they, what, what their challenges were, what they overcame. And in Caitlin's case, so Caitlin is the youngest managing editor that Christianity has ever had. Yeah. And she's the first woman as well. And so in many ways, there's no template for her to kind of look over and figure out how she's going to be doing the work that she's doing. Especially, I think we probably be neglected if we didn't say like the internet also has a different twist in terms of like what the print manager's responsibilities are and how they yep. understand their job and how they relate to this other sphere. Um, so she's really been a trailblazer in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. as opposed to kind of getting into a place where you can see lots of other people. And she's made it so that people like me feel like women in leadership is kind of a norm at the company, not an exception. We talked a little bit about her feelings about being the first of those things. And it was a really interesting discussion. I'm not going to, I'm just going to tease it and say it was interesting. Um, we also talked about what she talks about in the beginning of her book, which is her broken off engagement. Got kind of real at the end. It got really real at the end, which I appreciated. She was very honest and open. I think people get a lot out of it. Here she is. It is the case that people in the Midwest are down to earth, generally easy to approach. Yeah. Um, suspicious of people who put on airs lack of pretension. Mm-hmm. These are all things I, I like about the Midwest. Plus there are beautiful places in the Midwest. Plus we have Chicago. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it's just that I've been here for so long. I just want to see other, I want to try to live in other parts of the country to see how I adapt. Yeah. I could see that. <laughs> I don't want to adapt anymore. And see like what other Pokemon are out there. Do you, <laughs> I think there's the same kind of Pokemon as here. You don't think there are like southern Pokemon? Yeah, they're not like. Hey, species. I'm a Pokemon. <laughs> Gotta catch me, Pokemon. Caitlin, you are the author of A Woman's Place. By the time this podcast comes out, it will have been out. Yeah. So you wrote about women mm-hmm. and work. Yeah. Maybe that has to do with this. The, your answer to this question. Maybe it doesn't. I'm actually really interested to know. You know this already. We ask all of our guests how you de- would define your calling. So how would mm-hmm. you, Caitlin Beatty, define your calling? Mm-hmm. So I have a prepared answer for this because I've been meeting with a life coach. That's imp- So is that like, okay, we're going to go into this. Yeah. Is that like one of the things that happens when you meet a life coach is they go, we're going to figure out what you're called to do. It's not that direct or programmatic, but I, through the course of several sessions, we develop a life purpose statement, which is about as close to a, to a calling. Yeah. this is your calling. And it's not wrapped up in like, this is your specific job or job title. It's yeah. like in whatever area you're working, this is what your specific or unique contribution is. So my life purpose statement is... I am the docent. Going to need you to define that for me. (laughs) (laughs) A docent is a, it's actually usually a volunteer at a museum who takes groups of people around and shows them all the interesting things in a museum and explains why it's important and gets them really excited about what's in a museum. Got it. So I am the docent who leads people in a way that educates, informs, inspires worship, and calls people to a deeper and better life. Cool. But in my day-to-day life, that is going to come across in my writing. Writing is the thing that I can't imagine not doing whatever my job title is. You consider yourself a writer first, an editor second? In my heart of hearts, yes. In my day-to-day work, it's rare that I would spend much time at CT writing. You know, there's the occasional editorial article, but most of the time I'm working on other people's words. Because that's just typically how it goes to work at CT as an editor. Yeah, and it's very rare that you could do a full-time job just writing, Mm -hmm. unless you're like Ann Voskamp. Yeah. 
or Stephen King. So, but do you aspire to be Anne Voskamp? No, and here's why. I really enjoy belonging to an institution. Mm. I enjoy belonging to an organization or a subculture that is clearly shaping the direction of a culture or a community. I don't, I have less trust in an individual being able to do that. So for some people, working at institutions is maddening because mm-hmm. you, you feel like you know the right thing to do. Because those you people feel like, are selfish, right? Um, yeah. The selfish people don't like working at institutions or being parts of institutions. They want to go off and do their own thing. Right, right. What is it that you like about working at institutions? Yeah, I think it's that I believe that institutions are where cultural change happens in the most direct and long-lasting way. So an institution lives beyond the lifespan of its founder and its original members. That's the amazing thing about the institution. And obviously there's a very strong Christian argument for institutions, right? Like God, when God was calling individuals to himself through the gospel in the early, in early Christian communities, their central life together rather than these one-on-one individuals is what he was calling and creating. Yeah. But do you struggle with it? Like, is it something you fit in? You're like, yeah, I like institutions. This is fun. Or do you find yourself, your your sort of selfish part of you? Mm Because if I'm honest, this has been my struggle. For me, I had created this thing called Christ in Pop Culture. Mm -hmm. And then I moved into an institution called Christianity Today. One of those things was like my thing. Your baby, yeah. it definitely wasn't to the level of an institution, right? So we could easily shift and change course as we needed to. Well, I would actually argue that it is an institution. I would argue that Christ and Pop Culture is an entity that extends beyond the individual who created it. That's interesting. There's a reason why you didn't call it richardclark.com. Um, yeah, Alan is the main reason. <laughs> My co-founder. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Well, yes, I mean, I was an only child for the first four and a half years of my life. Right. And so I have a special snowflake syndrome where I do want to stand out in an organization as being important or essential or a leader or have a more visible role. And that's partially why I've enjoyed when I was working on it day to day you know, hermeneutics, which was kind of this like sub creation within the institution of CT was my baby. Yeah. And I enjoyed how closely it was aligned with who I am. Yes. Everything had like a little bit of Caitlin imprint on it that was published. And then it was successful. That terrible. No, it sounds great. No, I, I don't think that sounds terrible at all. I think most people will resonate with that satisfaction that mm-hmm. not only did you create something that flowed from like sort of who you are and what you're about right but also it people resonated with it so talk about what hermeneutics was about another lady editor and i started it in 2009 and at the time christianity today was launching all these new blogs that was the strategy at the time like we need to expand what we're publishing online we need to find all these niche audiences and niche conversations and given that at the time, Sarah Pulliam Bailey and I were two of three women editors on staff. And in my interview, I said, <laughs> well, when I look through the CT, it feels like a men's magazine to me. Right. <laughs> yeah. Which was kind of snotty. Uh-huh. But it was also true. Yeah. And they acknowledged that, that was a that perception was, in fact, yeah. accurate on some level. So hermeneutics was created as a way to basically, I mean, in its most essential basic form, just feature the writing of evangelical women and writing that fit within the tone and rubric of CT. It was a way of of acknowledging that on a lot of topics that are of core concern to Christians, women are going to come at the topics from a different vantage point or different perspective or different experience than men. And that we need to hear those experiences and voices. And also saying like, okay, if we're a publication for the church, 
the church is made up of both men and women. So if we're not addressing both in some way, we're, we're, we have a blind spot. So it kind of took off. I mean, not to toot my own horn. I mean, it was really the strength of the writers. And I think there was just a felt need. There was just this vacuum of people waiting for. I mean, one of the words that we use that can sound a little pejorative to other women's publications is like, we're thoughtful. You know, we're for like, we're for Christian women who don't like the other Christian women stuff out there. Yeah. You said your calling was to be a docent. At what point did you realize that that was your calling? So I think one of the earliest experiences that I had that, for example, made me realize I love writing and I love having people engage my ideas in my writing and getting feedback on it and having the sense that I've shaped how people think about the world is working on the student newspaper at Calvin College. And Calvin is one of the rare Christian colleges that has a dance minor. So that's that flows from a reformed theology of like every human enterprise falls under the Lordship of Christ and dance is no less something that we can redeem and and use for the glory of God. So they have this dance off every, they call it dance guild. I was in it once and danced to a beastie boys song. Uh huh. Uh huh. Which one? (laughs) Something from their robot album. Hello nasty. (laughs) Even even Hello Nasty can be redeemed. Okay. (laughs) Anyway, I wrote a piece about Dance Guild for the student newspaper as an editorial. And I had all these friends or acquaintances come up to me and say, I'm so glad someone finally said that. Or I'm so glad that you addressed my concerns about this. And it was this early experience of, I mean, it was an early experience of leadership, of saying something or reflecting something back to a community that I believed was edifying and that would shape the direction of the community. And so I later had experiences at CT writing editorials. Now, there was a time when our editorials weren't signed, but I knew that I had written them and other people in the building did and getting feedback like, oh, I'd never thought of it that way or thank you so much for saying that or I really needed to hear that is... You don't, as a writer, you don't write things for yourself. You write them with an audience in mind. You write you write because you have something to say to a reader with the intention of shaping the way they think about the world right. and the way they feel about the world. Why did you want to shape things at CT? I first encountered CT in college. My parents had a subscription. They actually became Christians when I was a teenager. So I didn't grow up in, you know, our our age peers will have stories about like, I wasn't allowed to watch Pokemon (laughs) (laughs) or Captain Planet (laughs) because there were there was magic in that. And where did their magical powers come from? Yeah, I didn't have that. Uh I was thoroughly shaped by stories of magical powers. But when I was a college student, my parents, I would say that I didn't grow up with any exposure to the intellectual Christian Christian tradition. I grew up in a, you know, with strong worship experiences and kind of personal piety. I knew all of that going into college, but college was my first experience of having faith and thinking and education integrated. And you went into, you had a very specific college experience you went to calvin college what made you go to calvin college i wanted to go to a christian college and i wanted to stay in the midwest and it was i really liked the campus and they said something i mean you know in one of those freshman orientation tours of the campus they said yeah they were like at calvin we believe that being a christian is not so much about what you do as who you are I was like, oh, that sounds cool. Yeah. It really is when you choose a college, it's all about who says the cool thing. Yeah, yeah. Who says the thing that resonates with you. Plus, they had like better chicken fingers than Taylor. That helps. So Sorry, Taylor. <laughs> your chicken fingers are terrible. <laughs> oh, there's someone responsible for the chicken fingers at Taylor. Yeah. And they're like, oh, they're the having Lord a bad day them. right now. Right. <laughs> the Surely they listen to our, this podcast. It's possible. So anyway... 
I wanted to go to Calvin because I wanted that faith and learning integration. I wanted to live on a dorm floor where other women and I could like pray together and, and do life together, you know, do Christian life together. I had gone to public school up until college. So I never had that experience before. And also the aforementioned chicken fingers. So, and I had a wonderful experience at Calvin. Like, Actually, it was probably the happiest time in my life. Real, that's surprising to me because I did not enjoy college because of all of the stuff that you just said. I had all those expectations. And, and they didn't. It didn't I thought happen. it'd basically be like heaven on earth. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's regular people on earth. Like it's just yeah. people hanging out together. Right. Being right. people, which is mostly like jerks to each other. <laughs> you know? Where did you go? Uh, the Baptist College of Florida. It's a great okay. school, but like. I actually knew people who went, friends who went to Calvin who didn't have. They had experience. that heaven on earth expectation and they didn't have a good experience. Yeah. So, yeah, but definitely college was this set apart time mm. to think upon uh, the world that God made for its own sake. Yeah, that's good. You know, I, I loved writing papers. Yeah. <laughs> this is why you liked it more than I did. <laughs> I did not. And then um, I came across an editorial that Christianity Today had published on Bono. And their take was a little grumpy. And a little snooty, but it was very well thought through and engaging. And I was like, okay, I need to pay attention to CT. I remember going home and reading CT and thinking, they're too politically conservative. <laughs> but I don't feel that way now. Maybe it's just because I, I like drank the Kool-Aid. And that brings us back to the question of the relationship between individual identity and institutional identity. Right. They change each other. Right. And one changes with one more than the other, I think, right? You think so? Uh, it seems inevitable that yeah. you are not you are not going to be able to change an entire you can it's like a Titanic versus a rowboat. Like you can <laughs> literally just do this like I am a you Titanic, move your though. arm once and you've turned a rowboat. <laughs> you know? It's hard to that turn. That is such an interesting metaphor. Yeah. But when you're on the Titanic, you're like one of those people down in the bottom area (laughs) (laughs) that's what it's technically called the bottom area you're down in the steam room you're in the steam room and you're like shoveling coal Mm -hmm. to make the to make the boat keep going just go that's the whole point But you're not steering it yeah not necessarily anyway yeah someone's steering it somewhere right and you can go say hey could you steer (laughs) a little more to the right (laughs) or the left as it were It did at any point you reach a moment where you doubted uh, your calling. Like you thought, I don't know. I don't know if I'm cut out for this whole docent thing. Mm. Well, the first few years at CT, I felt very lost. I was not used to the expectations of deadlines. Um, I felt very alone. I just, you know, being one of the younger editors, there was an age gap of like, a ton of young editor- editors and then editors who'd been here for 25 years and were my dad's age. There weren't any women, like senior editors. So I, I didn't feel like I had a natural mentor to go to and say, what do you do about this? Or, you know, I need your advice on this or whatever. What was the outcome of that? Like the, t- the sort of tentative outcome? Did you consider uh, moving on? Did you, what, what was the, what were the stakes? I don't know. I mean, I think what kept me engaged was that I actually cared about the end product. So you're just plugging along. Like, you were just like, this is hard, but I'm here. I'm doing this. Yeah, and I would say that is that is one of my my strong points. Okay, yeah. That's one of my strengths is, like, a kind of grin and bear it, get it done approach to work. And sometimes that's unsustainable and exhausting. And I need to work more on, like, the integration of mind, heart, and will. It's not just will. You know, it can't just be all grit. There has to be passion or or a deep ultimate concern for what you're doing. But in those early years, it was just like, get it done. Did you find yourself able to sort of live out uh, the thing you wanted to do in the early years? Or were you limited? So a turning point, a turning point for me was definitely 
having my baby called hermeneutic. And it was like, okay, I have this creation to tend and grow and raise, as it were. And I had a lot of agency in the direction of hermeneutics. And that was immensely rewarding. And and I had a sense that I was helping to shape the culture of CT. That That is, you can do, you can put up with a lot if you feel like you have that agency to make changes. What was, so, okay, you haven't mentioned being a woman at all. <laughs> That's weird, Caitlin. It's not really weird. Only, it's the only reason I mean, it's weird. I do weird. bring it up a lot. <laughs> <laughs> the only reason it's weird is because you just wrote a book about it. <laughs> and But you haven't mentioned that you're a man. I haven't written a book about being a man. I don't ever intend to, in fact. (laughs) This is the part of the interview that makes me nervous. Yeah, that's good. So that's why you haven't brought it up. Why does it make you nervous? Because gender is such an important topic. And it's a topic that incites a lot of very personal and strong reactions. Because it is so intimately tied up with who we are and how we experience and see the world. And I think because of certain divisions in the church around gender, when you have a leader wading into the topic, people are waiting on both sides to see, like, are you on our side? Are you on their side? What do we do with you? Are you are you healing divides? Are you creating further divides? And I think it's clear within the first several pages of my book that I am not intending to divide women. That's the last thing I want. That would be me failing to serve the church and live into being a docent. Right, right. (laughs) Um, But, well, I think there's something about gender that is actually mysterious. And that's why we, it's important and we keep coming back to it and conversations about gender and faith keep changing over time. And it's why we have so much invested in it. It's actually very intimately tied up with our image bearing. So it's a core issue. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. You were you were the first. Um, you were a first, right? Mm-hmm. That's that that puts weight on you a little bit, right? Like mm-hmm. being the first female managing editor of an institution, right? Uh, in this case, Christianity Today. What what does that feel like? And I think what like here's what I. Imagine it must feel like. Okay. You have two sets of people who see you as a symbol. Mm-hmm. Uh, one set of the people is people who see you as a symbol of something bad. Right. And another set of people who see you as a symbol of something good. Mm-hmm. And both of those are expectations mm-hmm. that essentially are impossible to address or live up to. Right. But th- how do you cope with that? You must have come up with a way to cope with people who expect you to be perfectly what feminist or however you want to put it mm-hmm. and then to also cope for with people who think you're liberal or whatever right right yeah i honestly this is going to sound weird i don't think of myself as a woman first even though i wrote a book about being a woman and w- being a working woman and addressing other women i i just think of myself as caitlin and that of course is inherently tied to being a woman. But the work that I do at CT is foremost about being an editor and a writer. And my responsibility is to do those things well. And actually, I would say the people who look to me to be like, to bring, to usher in gender equality in the church are not being fair 
in a similar way as to the people who are concerned about women in leadership or some kind of spiritual leadership. It's actually a, a dehumanizing way to treat a person. Oh, yeah. Because yeah, that it, makes sense because I literally just called you a symbol. It foists upon that person an ideology or or a, a worldview that no one person can possibly inhabit. And I, I actually think it's bad for our souls if we try to, um, because we don't we don't live as perfectly coherent ideologies, not even as Christians. Right. There are always parts of our lives and parts of ourselves that are not yet under the lordship of Christ. Um, so I don't I don't think of myself as a woman editor, even though I write about it a lot. <laughs> but in my day to day work, book. I'm like, I'm just Caitlin. I'm yeah. just I'm just that dude in the corner. Not really. Not the dude part person. <laughs> <laughs> uh, as as you so you wrote uh, an editorial a while back that I really liked an apology to the local oh, church. Yeah. Yeah. Can you summarize that for for our listeners and for me just to refresh my mood? <laughs> sure. So. At that time, a, a prominent Christian writer had acknowledged on his own website that he had stopped going to church. And he, according to him and his account, several other Christian leaders would tell you, you know, the, the reader, that they don't belong to a local church. And that created a whole stir, obviously, about the role of the local church in, in the Christian's life. And in our sanctification, I acknowledged that in the editorial, and I wrote it as like a letter to the church, that even though, unlike this writer, I would say every, you know, a, a core essential aspect of being a Christian is to belong to the local church and to pour, to pour into it. I treated my local church in a, the same consumerist my needs first way that this writer was doing. So I was looking to the church primarily in terms of what it could give me as an experience or even what it could give me in terms of a experience of community. Like, do I like these people? <laughs> do I like the people that I worship with? Do I resonate with the style, the preaching style of the pastor? How does all of this accord with my own preferences? I talked about, and this is a true story, a woman at my former church who attributed many events in the world as the work of angels and would also talk a lot about the presence of deceased pets in our lives. And I would often think, I don't want to worship with people who have crazy ideas like this. Uh But there was something about worshiping alongside that crazy aunt week in and week out that transcended my own preferences. And that actually spurs all of us on to preparing for heaven, preparing for the new kingdom. There are going to be people there that we wouldn't choose to affiliate with in our time on earth. Your work, your professional life is very much like leading uh, the church writ large, certainly. Like it's you're a, you play a role in leading the church. Not to overstate it, but yeah. we a, lead the church. A role, a role. You play a role in leading the church and certainly local churches are a part of that. How, what's, what is your posture in a local church congregation? How do you switch into, Mm. or do you switch into, are you, do you play Mm -hmm. a leadership role at your church? Mm -hmm. And if not, why not? Mm -hmm. And what is that like? So my answer is like, is horribly cliched, but so there's something about my work during the week that's very public and very visible and that requires me to be on even when I'm not at work. Like, I wear this identity hat throughout the week. I am the managing editor of CT. On the weekend, and especially on Sunday morning, I want to take that hat off and put on the hat of Jesus follower. You know, a mere Christian. And so what that actually means is that I don't teach Sunday school very often. 
Um, I don't, I don't aspire to a leadership role in the local church, even though I have fellowship with other Christians there. And that's, I actually think that might be good for my spirit to not be a professional Christian every day of the week. There is something, and I think this is actually, even though I ultimately disagree with him, I think this is what that writer was getting at several years ago about the weird dynamic that can happen or that can occur. The writer that your column is responding to. Yeah. Yeah. That can happen when your work, your day-to-day work and your faith are so tied up with one another. And I don't know how to exactly articulate it, but in a way, I think that the accountant who isn't having to think about what Jesus thinks about multiplying these two numbers Mm -hmm. may have a simpler and clearer vision of what it means to follow Jesus in that context than than we do. Totally. Yeah, I can relate to that. So I'm going to become an accountant. I thought about Subway sandwich maker, artist. (laughs) Yeah, definitely artist. Sandwich. That's what they call them that. But then even that... I don't want to call it an artist because that implies a subjectivity and I just don't have to think about it. I just want to make the sandwich. There have been so many times when I have gone through the drive-thru at Starbucks and thought, oh, how I just long for a simple, straightforward, you have one job Mm -hmm. and it's to make the latte. Definitely. There's no having to necessarily integrate it with your worldview. (laughs) No one standing there like waiting. How is she going to make the latte as a woman leader? Uh, in what ways has the work you do and living out this calling changed you over time? So I start the book in a pretty vulnerable place. Mm-hmm. And I did that because I had a writer once say to me, go vulnerable or go home. I like that. Yeah. And when I was 27, I had been an editor at CT for five years and I was growing in my responsibilities. And I had just started working on the This Is Our City project with Andy Crouch and was traveling for that and really enjoying it. And I was also engaged to be married. And at the time, and a lot of this was, I think, subconscious, but I assumed that once I got married, I would either stop working or work would certainly take a back seat, not only in terms of my time and energy investment, but also in terms of my identity. And I'm not married now. Just to repeat, I'm not married now. I did not end up getting married to this person that I was engaged to. And the day that we decided to end things and not to get married was the same day that I was offered the position of managing editor at CT. So over breakfast, you know, my supervisor was like, hey, would you ever be interested in taking on this position? I had no idea that it was going to be open anytime soon. Right. And it, in fact, had said, like, what would I want to do at CT? Oh, if I were in charge of the magazine, you know, this mm-hmm. is what I would do. Mm-hmm. And then over lunch, my fiance at the time and I ended things. And naturally, I've thought a lot about the the meaning of that day in my life. And I think just, you know, very simply... I experienced it to be God's providential care and provision and and also cemented that my writing and leadership and docenting isn't something that I would put on the shelf of my identity if I were to get married and have children. That it would still be true about me, even though it may be expressed in different realms or arenas. And I wouldn't necessarily be be here, what I'm doing right now, today. It's still part of what God has created me to be in the world. Can I ask you to speculate? Because I think this would be beneficial for some listeners. Okay. If you were to get married and have kids, what would your calling, living out your calling, possibly look like in that scenario? It's really hard to say because you, you think that you have an answer to that based on who you are now. But naturally, you change marriage to this hypothetical person mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. and creating new people. These are some of the most formative human experiences That's that true. you can have. And they would change me. Yeah. Yeah. And so I don't know. I mean, I want to say where I am now that, in fact, I would continue to work, if not directly after having a child, then soon after. And that I would, I would, that that it would be important to 
pursue a dual call at the same time. But I also totally understand why women choose to be in the home for those first five years of life or however long that they think they they want to be there. I mean, my mom, even though my my dad was traveled a lot for his work in the military, um, she was at home with me and my brother until I was eight. And, and that was really important to her. And that was a value of hers. And certainly that didn't mean that she never went back to work. And it didn't mean that her she's a librarian. So her love of books and her love of learning and reading that never went away. It's was still a core part of who she is. It was just expressed differently in that time. What would you say is the deepest fear that you have when it comes to living out your calling? How much time do you have? My deepest fear of living out my calling is that by doing so, I would be foreclosing on other options, Hmm. on other good options. Like what? That I would, I mean, to get even more specific, Mm -hmm. which, as I said earlier, go vulnerable or go home. So here we go. Please. That there wouldn't be many Christian men who would be excited to partner with me in that. Why do you, why is that a fear? Because I haven't met any Christian man. (laughs) (laughs) Do you feel like there's a cultural thing that that causes? Is that like an experience you've had is like men have certain expectations and you're not quote unquote scare quotes living up to them or you're unable to? I mean, surely, surely you and our listeners have heard of like the intimidating woman syndrome, right? Yes. No. Yeah, that sounds familiar. I mean, I don't know how many of our listeners have. Three years ago, after the broken engagement, my parents and I were, my parents were visiting me here and we had come back from dinner and my dad was doing a very loving, my dad's like my favorite person in the world besides Jesus. And he was asking me about my like dating life and it wasn't at all pressury or trying to fix a problem. He was just truly curious. And he said, well, first he said, I think you're beautiful. Which that really matters for women to hear from their dads. Okay. I know that sounds totally cheesy. It sounds sexist to some. I don't know. No? And I didn't, because I know my dad and I know his heart, I didn't yeah. receive it as that. So you th- that was super encouraging. Not even complicated. It was, it was just encouraging. Yeah, it was just really sweet. Okay. And then he said, honestly, I, I think, I don't know. I don't know why you're single. And by him saying that, he was saying, you shouldn't be single. It's weird. It's yeah. weird that you're single. Yeah. and then he said i honestly think that have you ever wondered if some men are intimidated by you and what i received that as was not therefore could you kind of play down the leadership thing and could you kind of play down the work stuff because it's really intense yeah and could you just be a certain way so that men wouldn't find you intimidating what i heard it as was what in the world is going on with with men in our generation that your the strength of your call or your character would be seen as problematic rather than exciting and attractive but you must have considered dialing it down that has to have been something you've thought about i don't know that i have really you never thought about it what what would dialing it down look like oh that's a great question you know because again what you probably had a moment where you said i mean i guess i could just like you know, not be myself, but that's impossible. Right. I mean, what is the other option for if the option is don't be yourself? I think I know what my choice is going to be. Right. And I know that sounds, of course, you could talk about how you prioritize your time and being open to new people. And for a lot of women of my generation, is it is it that important that he has the same education level as me or is going to be able to afford a mortgage right off the bat. Like there are certain considerations that we would say, actually, that's not that important when you're choosing a life partner or like maybe you're putting too much. I feel so embarrassed that we're talking about this. (laughs) You want to move on? But it's interesting, right? It is interesting. And I think people struggle with it. So that's why I'm talking about it. I think people struggle with a similar dilemma, whether it's men who feel like they should be more manly and right. in, in control, which right. is something I've struggled Have with. Have their stuff together. Yeah. 
or yeah. or women who feel like they're too intimidating. Yeah, and and there's honestly some reassurance in knowing that we are in this cultural moment that is truly unprecedented in terms of women's education, women's advancement in the workplace. Meanwhile, we we know about men having not all men, of course, but some men. Hashtag not all men. Hashtag not all men, but a lot of men seeming to have trouble securing this what we've considered kind of core signals of adulthood. And so we have this imbalance among the sexes. And then we also have an imbalance in numbers in the church. Like there are just more women than men in the local church. So we're in this really strange moment. Yeah, I was going to ask what role the local church plays in this dilemma, uh, if you would call it a dilemma. You seem to want to eventually be married. Yeah, Definitely. So what role? <laughs> uh, 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 but, but I'm not like, I mean, I have lots of other things going on. I'm like, <laughs> it's not like I'm like desperate. I mean, it's, it come back, might be nice. Someday. It's totally fun. It's totally fun. Okay. So in the local church, what are your expectations and does it live up to that? And mm-hmm. what, what role has the local church ultimately played in this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that I think most Christians would agree that meeting a spouse in the context of the local churches is in some ways preferable to trying the online dating scene. And it's not that, you know, people meet each other online all the time and it works, but there's something about coming from a similar spiritual context that really helps. And part of what we agree to in the church is to support each other's marriages. And so that is a really fruitful context for dating it's also a place where you're you understand it's not just the two of you as individuals trying this out but you're held accountable in this bigger you you invite people to speak into your lives as a dating couple i think all of that is ex- extremely healthy i do wonder if churches need to grapple with this these imbalances that we've been talking about in terms of maturity and then just sheer numbers between single men and single women and and help men adjust their expectations, maybe, and ask, is it a deal breaker that she has, if, that she's going to grad school? Why would that be a deal breaker? And I, I in some ways, I'm speaking hypothetically, or I, I don't have a specific church or person in mind. Sure. But some of the things that we label intimidating in women is there a reframing that could happen where those things are actually seen as valuable and signs of maturity and purpose in a woman's life? Uh, you are also the youngest managing editor? Yeah. At Christianity Today, more identity things, right? <laughs> yeah. More like symbol things. Right. Uh, so because that is the case, I'm going to ask your age. Now. Now. Yeah. What's your age? 31. So you're 31. So you just crossed over into 30. Yeah. Yeah. And what a relief. Oh, my gosh. Now you're like, seriously, really, for real an adult. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So with that context, if you could get into a time machine and go back in time and come out of that time machine Mm. and say, hello, Caitlin from the past, Mm -hmm. what would you tell her? I think I would go back to age 22. Which is a horrible age, by the way. Yeah, it is. But I would go back to age... You were, you were in college at this time? I like just left college. Okay. I graduated college. And I think I would say you will experience profound success in mm-hmm. the next 10 years. And you will experience profound loss in the next 10 years. And both of these things will shape fundamentally who you are, but they're not the most important thing. And all shall be well. And I don't say that in a flippant way. I mean, it's a it's a Julian of Norwich quote, so you can't really pull it out flippantly. But all yeah. all shall be well. All shall be solved. You know. You the, would encourage her so that she might endure. Yeah. Did you struggle to endure to a point where you feel it like it changed things? Going through the broken engagement felt well. It was it was it was trauma in some sense. Yeah. And I feared that my very self was being taken away yeah, or denied sure. in that experience. And that is not true. And it's also not true that the success and the accomplishments tell me the most fundamental 
thing. They don't give me myself any more than the broken engagement took myself away. Yeah. Yeah, It's the shift from doing to being. And that is. What do you mean by that? The central call of your life. Yeah. Is to be an image bearer of God and to receive his word to you. Mm -hmm. Regardless of what happens or regardless of what you accomplish. But we're in a doing culture, maybe especially in ministry culture. It it really is about numbers and accomplishment and what are you doing for the Lord? Have you seen Crazy Ex-Girlfriend? Oh, yeah. So there's the scene early in the season where he goes to his priest. Yeah. The worst priest <laughs> yeah. on earth. Because I think he's smoking marijuana <laughs> when he visits. I don't know if I've gotten that far, but uh, <laughs> he literally is like, it's not who you are that matters. It's not what you think that matters. It's what you do. (laughs) And I'm like, that is terrifying. That's like the opposite thing. Yeah. Yeah. Of what Jesus says, I think. Yeah. And so the doing, but the doing thing, I mean, I love, I can't go through a day without feeling that I have accomplished something very tangible Mm. on my to-do list. That drives you crazy to end a day and feeling like you haven't accomplished something. Like vacations. Yeah are very hard for me. (laughs) Unless it's a vacation where it's like, okay, we're going to go see this historical monument and then Uh we're going to go to visit this museum and then we're going to go to the beach and we're going to cross those things off our list. Yeah. I sound like I need counseling as I say it out loud. Well, that's why you're here. (laughs) (laughs) So I am, I am a, an accomplishment oriented person. So that has spiritual ramifications. You know, like God is, is at the end of the day, I mean, all the things that I'm doing ultimately for him are good mm-hmm. but like there's even something deeper that he's he's primarily concerned with you've been listening to the calling caitlin Beatty is the print managing editor of christianity today magazine the co-founder of hermeneutics and the author of a woman's place a christian vision for your calling in the office the home and the world you can follow her on Twitter at Caitlin Beatty. That's K-A-T-E-L-Y-N-B-E-A-T-Y. Remember to rate and review the show on iTunes. It helps us a lot. The Calling is produced by Cray Allred. Theme music by Lee Rosevere, used under Creative Commons 4.0.